Well, good morning, fellowship. How are you today? Happy second service on a Sunday. You guys having a good summer so far? All right. Fantastic. Uh, If we haven't crossed paths before, let me introduce myself. My name is Mike. I'm not a teaching pastor. I'm a member here at Fellowship. I've been coming uh, to Fellowship for about 16 years. Uh, My wife and I moved to uh, Tennessee from Southern California back in 2002. And when we came here, we started uh, church shopping, for lack of a better word, and uh, landed on Fellowship Bible. I guess we were meeting over at the Franklin High School at the time, and then uh, started going to what is now the Brentwood campus over there. Um, Love uh, Fellowship Bible Church. I've been recently added to the elder board here, and I'm grateful for that. Um, If you're seeing me here, that means that one of your teaching pastors is taking a much-deserved weekend of rest. I get called out of the bullpen from time to time uh, on the occasional Sunday, either in the pulpit uh, at one of these campuses or else occasionally I'm a Sunday school teacher. We do something called a study in the barn over at the Brentwood campus uh, and I get to partake in that from time to time as well. Grateful to be with you guys this morning. Um, So we are going to dive into Ecclesiastes, but before we uh, take the time to jump in there, I want to just uh, just give a little bit of context and a little bit of background on myself, because it'll play somewhat into our message today. Um, I uh, moved to the USA from Canada. I'm not a a Native uh, American. I was born north of the border in Canada, where I spent my first 24 years. Like many others, I looked on to the USA from a bit of a distance with a certain degree of longing. I wanted to be here. Uh, I looked at what all that America had to offer, even as a Canadian, right? We're together in North America. Our opportunities in Canada are not entirely unlike the opportunities in America, but there is a sense that the, what America had to offer was greater. It was better. This is in our forming documents in America. This is a place where you pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? We're aware in America of our freedoms. We know that they are significantly greater than where they are in many other parts of the world. But the pursuit of happiness is, quite frankly, one of the things that draws so many people here. What does that mean, pursuit of happiness? Let me tell you what that means. In America, if you want to be a doctor, you can be a doctor. If you want to be uh, a dentist, you can be a dentist. If you want to be a congressman or a congresswoman, guess what? You can do that too, right? If you want to be a lawyer, God bless you. You can be a lawyer. I hope there's not many of you with that ambition, but you can be a lawyer in America, right? Um, What's different about America compared to so many places around the earth is that you can choose wherever you want to be on this ladder of opportunity, right? Uh, America gives you a level playing field, right? There's no guarantees of success in this country, but you're allowed to go after it here if you want to. You're allowed to change your family tree, right? Um, And you get to climb this ladder of success in this country. And you've got to know that what you have in America is special um, because in so many other parts of the world, you find yourself born onto a very specific place on the socioeconomic ladder. So many places in the world, you are born here, and you will grow up here, and you will marry here, and you will die here. There is no upward mobility. You don't have the opportunity to climb up and to improve your station in life. It is determined for you. 
And my friends, there's faults with our country. There's things that, uh, you know, we, we're recognized that there's some, some parts of the American experiment that we realize sometimes we struggle with. There's times in our country where we don't live up to our values, to our ideals. I get that. But I also know that Scotland, for example, is not watching her borders really closely right now to make sure that no one's trying to sneak in, right? Ukraine doesn't have that problem either right now, okay? That is almost a uniquely American problem. And here's why it's a problem. It's really good here. We live in an extremely blessed nation. The freedoms that you have, the opportunities that you have, they are unique. And that's why people are trying to come here. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just acknowledging reality. That's one of the things that drew me here as I wanted to partake of this. And I think we should thank God every day for the nation that we were born into. Right? Again, even when America fails to live up to her ideals, this is a truly, truly blessed nation and one that we should be grateful we are born into. Amen? All right. So speaking of dreams coming true, Right, this is a place where you can do that. How many of you remember back to when you were younger? Uh, and just for you know, sp- placing a timestamp on that, think back to the time that you were 16 years old. Now, I know that some of you in this room are not even 16, but for the grown-ups in here, think back to the time that you were 16. What were some of the dreams for the future that you had when you were 16? And you kind of were forward-facing, and you said to yourself, "Man, when I grow up, I want to be this." Or when I get older, I want to have this, or I want to do this. What were some of your dreams for the future you had when you were young? I'm looking for volunteers. You want to be an astronaut. Cool. All right, what's another one? Yeah. You want to be a history teacher. Cool. What's another one? You wanted to be a mom? Fantastic. Yeah. Race car driver. (laughs) And? Go ahead. You wanted to make a difference. I love it. Yeah, in the green. I wanted to get my driver's license. You wanted to get your driver's license. Yes, ma'am. Travel the world. world. Other dreams. Yeah. Famous musician. musician. You guys are so much better than first service. Go for it. Okay. We found one. We found one. Love it. Great. She wanted to be a lawyer. Fantastic. I was the kind of kid that um, I had pictures that I had cut out that I had on my walls and on my bathroom mirror of the things that I wanted when I got older. Did any of you do that? Have posters on your walls or images and stuff like that? I remember when I was a kid, the kind of car I wanted to drive when I was older. All right, now, do you think I had pictures of Volkswagens on my walls? Yep. Negative. Yeah, no 16-year-old boy has cut out a picture of a Volvo and pasted it on his wall. We don't aspire to Volvo when we're 16, do we? Now, every, every 16-year-old boy relates to this. Maybe this gets lost on the women in the room. But, man, I had a Lamborghini. I had a Ferrari. I, oh, couldn't wait to have kind of the cool car. I also had cut out pictures of the houses I wanted to own when I was older. Uh, I even had pictures in my mind of the kind of vacations I wanted to have when I was older. Uh, I grew up in Western Canada, a place called Calgary, Alberta. Beautiful city. It's sort of the Canadian version of Denver. We're about an hour and a half from the Rocky Mountains. You can kind of see them in the distance. It's gorgeous. But we vacationed in a place called Saskatchewan. 
And I'm not sure if any of you know what that means. Probably 95% of you have never heard of Saskatchewan before, but let me draw this out for you. Picture the very, very driest, most rural, the flattest parts of Nebraska, okay? And the smell of cows and pigs are just ripe in the air, and cornfields and canola fields as far as the eye can see. In Saskatchewan, you've got mosquitoes that are this big, such that when you slap them, they kind of look at you and they're kind of ready to fight back. (laughs) I didn't love Saskatchewan. I, I dreamed of better vacations than Saskatchewan. Now, my dad was a farmer. He grew up on a farm. And for him, that probably really resonated with him in his heart, that that was a great, cool place to be. I just, it didn't connect with me. And so when I grew up, when I got older, I wanted to have different vacations in Saskatchewan. Um, Just, you know, probably all of you can look back on the dreams you had from your childhood. And probably one thing they all have in common is that they represent some kind of a step up the ladder from where you were at that time. Okay? Now, Again, walk with me on memory lane here for a second. We all dream we're going to be someplace when we're 16. Fast forward the clock to 25 now, okay? At 25 years of age, you've probably done some college, right? Perhaps you've done a bachelor's degree by now, maybe even a master's degree, okay? And probably you're no longer working at Chick-fil-A a couple days after school and on a Saturday making seven bucks an hour. At 25, you're making that kind of first job wage. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's 30,000 bucks or something like that. But you're earning more money and putting more money in your bank account than you could ever have related to when you were 16. So you feel like you have climbed this ladder. You've paid, you need your first couple steps up the ladder, right? And if you can kind of picture back to where you were at 25, it's, you're, you're starting to make good forward progress towards these ambitions, right? How many of you at 25 on that rung of the ladder said, Woo! Done climbing. I've arrived. Anybody? No. Why? Why have we not arrived at 25? right? Probably we're conscious that while we've made progress, the good life, it's still up ahead. We're not yet there, okay? And so we continue to climb. Now, I'm going to fast forward the clock a little bit. From 25 to, let's say, 45, you might meet the man of your dreams, or you might meet the woman of your dreams, and you fall in love, and you get married. That feels pretty good. And then maybe the job you had at 25, you either get promoted to a bigger role in that same company. Maybe you find a different job, different company. Or what my wife and I did was we decided to buy a business. And we started to be, we put our destiny in our own hands. And we felt like, yeah, that feels pretty good, right? And then maybe you start a family, right? You start having children. Maybe after that, you take on a job that's got stock options, 401k matching, right? You take step after step after step. You start climbing this ladder and you start to feel pretty good about yourself, right? How many of you in this room at 45 would say you're finished climbing the ladder? You're like, yes, I've arrived. I am where I will stay for the rest of my life. This is excellent. How many of you are done climbing at 45? Well, a couple hands, a couple tentative hands. For those of you who feel like even at 45, you're not or you weren't done climbing, why not? At 45, if I just describe that scenario, you're a... You're a one percenter in the eyes of the world. If you've got the house in Williamson County, if you've got a couple cars in your driveway, you've got a Roth IRA or a 401k with a balance in it, you're probably making more money at 45 and you could even conceived of or dreamed of at 16. Why aren't you done climbing at 45? Give me your thoughts. Why aren't you done climbing? 
Because why? There's more. Because there's more. Why else? Never satisfied. I think it's verse 7 in our text today. Solomon talks about being never satisfied. Any other reason why you're not done climbing at 45? It's expected that you will climb. Yeah. There's a bit of a societal pressure, a bit of an American ambition, American dream, and there's the help of advertisers, don't you think, that remind us, oh, by the way, you don't have this yet. You don't have this yet. Get yourself up that ladder. Okay? What I want to look at today is the, is the reality of the ladder. I don't know where you're at on the ladder this morning, but I want to I want to talk a little bit about the ladder in our time together today, and we're going to use the perspective of a fellow who himself has been climbing the ladder for quite some time, and he's sitting on what we would consider to be a fairly enviable perch on the ladder. I don't know your story. I don't know where you're at. I know nothing about you. But as we get into our text this morning, I want you to kind of put yourself in perspective on this uh, uh, symbol behind me here and just think through where you feel like you're at on the ladder in terms of goals and accomplishments, but also in terms of fulfillment. I know one of the things that I think about on the ladder myself is there's a sense that I need to keep climbing because I don't feel content here yet. I don't feel satisfied here. And there's a sense that satisfaction must just be a little further up the ladder. Okay? So let's segue over to Ecclesiastes. Open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 6, and we're going to dive in. A little transition uh, as we get into that. My youngest daughter, Amy, she's 12 years old. And as I was preparing for my message today, uh, she saw me working on my laptop with my Bible open. She said, Dad, what are you doing? Oh, Amy, I'm, I'm preparing a sermon. Oh, cool, you're going to be teaching at Fellowship again. Cool, what are you teaching on? I said, Ecclesiastes. She looked at me and she says, oh, great, life is miserable and then you die. <laughs> and she's 12, so I'll take that with a grain of salt, but I, 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 it felt like it would have done an injustice to just move past that because I think there's truth there. I think for some of us, the working through Ecclesiastes has been kind of tough sledding right? Um, uh, if you're in a sort of a down mood, if you came to church grumpy, as Emily might have suggested, uh, you're probably not going to read Ecclesiastes as a pick-me-up book, right? Solomon gives it to you pretty straight. He doesn't sugarcoat anything, and he almost seems to be a bit of a downer on life, right? He, uh, vanity of vanities, all is futile under the sun. This term, under the sun, it appears 27 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. I counted as I got ready for my message today. So Solomon is really giving you kind of this unfiltered uh, perspective on life. And what's weird is that he seems to be writing from a position that most of us would envy. Um, in my opinion, I think Solomon, could, we could say almost certainly that he's literally writing from the top rung of the ladder. All right, as the king of Israel, and, the, and when we look at how he's described in the biblical text, I think there's four ways that we could say with confidence that Solomon literally is writing from the top rung. That he literally he looked on no other person with envy in terms of what they had. Now, what are some of the ways that Solomon climbed to the top rung of the ladder? Where where had he outperformed all of anyone else? How, how was Solomon top rung status? Give me one example. 
wisdom. He was the smartest guy in Israel. When he was about to become the king of Israel, he prayed to the Lord for a gift. And God said, I'll give you whatever you want. He asked for wisdom so that he could lead his people well. And the Bible tells us that folks traveled from all over to be able to just listen to him, to be able to hear him. His intellect was so highly regarded. All right, so wisdom is one. What's another area where Solomon had top-rung status? Hmm? Wealth. Yeah, I don't know how we quantify this or even translate it to today's kind of status, but the Bible talks metaphorically of Solomon having cattle on a thousand hills. All right, that means a lot of money. Gold and silver were unequaled in this guy's possession, so he had as much financial chutzpah as you would want. Okay, how else had Solomon climbed to the top rung? What's another way? Hmm? Wives. Yeah, I think he had something like 700 wives, and to that we also add concubines. Yeah, so Solomon had many, many wives, a symbol of his power, right? And that, by the way, is another rung of the ladder. He was more powerful than anyone else in Israel, okay? So he had money, he had intellect, he had power, and as was mentioned, uh, he had many wives, but I would also suggest that he's probably experienced more pleasure than anyone else before him. And when I say that, I'm not just referring to his many wives. Ecclesiastes 2.10 says this, Solomon speaking in the first person says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. So if he wanted to try something, any kind of pleasure at all, it was available to him and he drank deeply of it. So Solomon is this guy who's writing from the top rung. And yet again, despite this very enviable station in life, he seems to be quite down on things, okay? And so we're going to dive into this. By the way, my approach to the text this morning, it's going to be a little bit different. We are an expository preaching church, which means we really let go in line by line, verse by verse, when necessary, Hebrew word by Hebrew word. And some of you very, uh, I don't want to use the word nerdy, but enthusiastic learners, who really did getting into the Hebrew meaning of this word and that word. Uh, I don't want to set you up for disappointment this morning, but I'm going to set you up for disappointment this morning. Um, when I read through Ecclesiastes 6, I felt like I kind of got the gist of what Solomon was going for. And so I'm going to be approaching this somewhat more topically this morning. I'm going to take us through about the first five or so verses, but then I'm going to speak to what I feel Solomon is trying to communicate, and I'm not going to be expository, expositing the, the, the rest of the text, uh, verses 6 through 12. Okay? So let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. Let's dive into it. Solomon says, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. He says, God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. If you have a pen, go ahead and underline that idea. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Solomon seems to be saying not just, hey, I didn't enjoy this stuff. He seems to be suggesting that God withheld joy. That's different. All right, let's move on. Verse 3. He says, a man may have a hundred children. Certainly Solomon was capable of doing so. And live many years. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity, and if he does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Well, a little commentary on this. In the Eastern mind frame, right, in Eastern culture, large families are a sign of blessing. Material abundance is a sign of blessing, and long life is a sign of blessing by God, 
Okay? And we'd relate with most of that, I think. Right? Uh, we would think that we'd be blessed by God if we lived uh, many long years. We'd probably feel blessed of God if we had you know, um, lots of possessions and wealth. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't relate to the hundred direct descendants as being a blessing. It, it might just be me. Uh, maybe I've seen too many TV shows where they talk about you know, drowning in octuplets or trying to survive quintuplets. You've seen these shows, right, where mom and dad are just narrowly clinging on to their sanity, trying to chase five or eight kids around the house. How big is your house, Luke? Seven. seven. Okay. Right? And it's, it, you're busy with seven, right? Safe to say? Can you imagine a hundred? Am I the only one who doesn't think that would feel like that's awesome? Okay. Anyways. My wife plays, this does great birthday parties. Like my wife invests weeks at a time getting ready for cool, like themed birthday parties. She would be fit to be tied if we had a hundred kids because that would be just way too many birthday parties in our world, okay? But again, in verse three, we go back to the same idea. Solomon says, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity, right? He says that a stillborn child would be better than he, Okay. I don't want to throw Rob Sweet under the bus in any way, but when Rob gave me my text, he says, ha you get the stillborn verse. I said, thank you very much, Mr. Sweet. It's an odd verse. Solomon is saying that a miscarried child or a stillborn child is better off than the person who can't live their life with contentment. And verse 4 and verse 5 describes this a bit. He says, requiring the stillborn, he says, it comes without meaning, It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does man. Now, it's a bit of a cold analogy to think of a a miscarried child as being better off than someone who can't enjoy their their provision or their, uh, their blessings. I wouldn't pick this analogy, but I think I know what Solomon's trying to communicate here. Now, please hear me when I say this. I'm speaking as one who's experienced what a miscarriage feels like. My wife and I have been through this. I'm not indifferent towards the pain of that, right? Um, Solomon is trying to say that a miscarried child has never experienced unfulfilled longing. They've never worked hard to pursue a dream or a goal or an accomplishment to see it realized and then discover that it doesn't really fulfill them. Right? I don't think Solomon's trying to diminish the pain of a miscarriage. I think he's trying to highlight the pain of a life that is lived without contentment, of a life where you don't have true satisfaction or inner rest. That's what I think Solomon is trying to communicate here. And I got to tell you, as I was reading through this verse as I was reading through chapter six to kind of prepare for today, because whenever you're going to prepare to teach something, you want to look over the text a number of times and just try to relate it to your own world. I tried to do that. I have no, I I can't relate to Solomon. I have no idea what that feels like. But I got to tell you that as I look on my own life, I'm 44 years old now. I, I came here to partake in the American dream and I've enjoyed that process. Um, I moved here in 1999 I did get married. I did buy a business. I've, I've lived my life, my career in the USA as an entrepreneur. I've bought, grown, and sold businesses here. Uh, I now coach business owners. Uh, I've got the house in Williamson County. Yes. Right? I've got a 401k with a balance in it. Yes. I've got two cars in my driveway. I know on the world scale I'm a one percenter. I'm not, I'm not bragging. Don't hear that. But I know that I've climbed this thing from where I was 
And yet, despite the blessings that I'm aware of in my own life, I look at where I am today at 44, and I even compare it back to where I was at 30. And I was, I was, I was chatting with my wife, Lynn, about this just a couple weeks ago. I feel more discontent in my heart today than I did at 30. And it doesn't make sense to me. I should be the happiest guy in the room with how we've climbed this ladder. But for whatever reason, that contentment, that inner deep satisfaction, it seems elusive. And it doesn't seem to be getting easier or better with time, at least in my experience. And maybe I'm alone here. I want you to survey your own life. I want you to look at where you're at in life, where you thought you'd be by now, where you are right now. I want you to look deep right here, and I want you to gauge, to gauge where is your content-o-meter in your life, right? How deeply satisfied are you in life? Are you radically happy going, man, this is awesome, we've made it? Or do you still feel like there's some kind of an emptiness going on in here? There's something that's preventing you from experiencing deep contentment, deep fulfillment in your life. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'll tell you, I'm very conscious that as the clock ticks on in my life, as the years go by, and even as we ascend this ladder when the years go by, I feel like contentment is harder and not easier to discover. And it's counterintuitive because I didn't think it would be this way. You see, we go through life and we, we think to ourselves, man, I'm not content right here, but the pr- reason why I'm not content here is that I'm not here. And then you get there and you're like, well, I'm not quite content. Well, the problem is that I'm not here. And it kind of drives us up the ladder over time. Some of you sacrifice significantly for every step up that ladder. Some of you have paid huge dues to get one step further, one step further, one step further, and your family has paid a toll for this. You've paid a toll for this. You're exhausted, and yet we're not happy. Again, I don't know if I'm communicating, if I'm resonating with you this morning or not. I feel like I'm preaching to myself a little bit because I'm talking about how I feel, right? We know that, or we think that happiness should be here or here or here. And when we get there, it's no better. And then we read stories in the news of celebrities who are committing suicide. And you're going, what? That doesn't make sense. You're sitting in your $8 million mansion committing suicide? What? And then you read Solomon in Ecclesiastes going, guys, it's no better up here. And it makes you want to hit the pause button and go, why am I climbing? What's the deal here? So I want, to, I want to take us to something that for me has been helpful in trying to wrap my head around this because, you know, you think we're in America. We're in the place of abundance. We're in the place where you chase your dreams. This is the land of opportunity of climbing the ladder. We should all be so glad to be here. Why is the number one category of prescription medication in the United States antidepressants? There's a disconnect here somewhere, right? So anyways, I want to take you to a poem. I came across a a poet named George Herbert when I was in seminary. You've probably never heard of this dude before. I certainly hadn't until this time. He was writing poetry in the 1600s. And I know you're going, oh, great. This is going to be like reading Chaucer. No, this will be better than that, I promise you, okay? I'm no poet. I actually don't have a love for poetry. But when I read George Herbert, I went, wow. And we're going to read a poem because I feel like George Herbert is really making clear some of Solomon's sentiments, okay? We're going to put it stanza by stanza up on the screen. Read along with me. I'm going to go slow so we can try to experience this together. George Herbert says, When God at first made man, 
having a glass of blessings standing by. Let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. Pause for a moment. God has this glass of blessings, and he's about to give them to mankind. He says, so strength first made a way. Then beauty followed. Then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay. He paused, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. He's given mankind all these gifts, but there's one gift he hasn't given mankind, and that is the gift of rest. For if he, I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest. Let him keep all these gifts I've given him, but let him keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. Wow. I love that third stanza. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, this jewel of rest, then he would adore my gifts instead of me. And then he would rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. If I give mankind beauty and wisdom and honor and pleasure, all the gifts of this world, and I make him restful with these gifts, he won't look for me. He'll feel like he has it all. Isn't that amazing? So Solomon says, an unborn child has more what than he has? More rest. George Herbert says that God has given mankind all these gifts but he has withheld rest. I think that's brilliant. My friends, we have so many good and wonderful gifts in this world that God has given us. We're conscious of these. You've got the gift of love. You've got your family, right? You probably live in a home. You probably got here with some form of transportation. There may be kiddos in your home when you get home that remind you of how wonderful it is to be a parent and to have kids. We've got so many great blessings. But there are first things and there are second things. Guys, God gives us the greatest pleasure of all, himself. Primary pleasure. But he also offers us secondary pleasures. Wisdom, beauty, honor, strength, the things that Solomon refers to. But sometimes in our fallenness, we mistake these secondary pleasures as primary pleasures. And we expect to try to find the fulfillment in these secondary things when fulfillment is not ultimately to be found there. Right? Don't get me wrong. Being married is fulfilling. But it doesn't ultimately fulfill. Right? Having a job or a career or hobbies that you enjoy, that's fulfilling. But it doesn't ultimately fulfill. Right? Having children at home, Luke has many. It's fulfilling, but it doesn't ultimately fulfill. Why? Because ultimately, only God fulfills. All these other things, these are great, 
but they don't take the place of God. Only God is the ultimate satisfaction in our life. Now, even within that, there's a proper understanding. I want you to turn backwards in your Bible just a couple pages. I want to look at two gems in Ecclesiastes that help us to make sense of where Solomon's at in his thought process. Because sometimes the pearls of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, they're not in like a standalone paragraph by themselves. They're almost written in quickly to some of Solomon's other thoughts. Go with me to Ecclesiastes 2.25 for just a second. And I want you to underline the verse because I feel this is helpful or instructive in us unpacking where Solomon's at. Ecclesiastes 2.25, again, it's almost smuggled into the text. Solomon says this, who can eat or enjoy life without him? That's one of the two keys to the book, in my opinion. Who can eat or enjoy life without him? Give me him, I can enjoy some of these other things. But take him out of the equation, and I try to find ultimate meaning and fulfillment in these other things, and they are vanity of vanities, all striving under the sun. Okay? God is our ultimate fulfillment. Psalm 1611 says, You have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. My friends, God is the ultimate fulfillment of our longings, of our pleasures. St. Augustine, he has a good one-liner. For those of you who have read the Confessions, you may remember this, but in the opening to Augustine's book, he has, uh, at, at the end of the intro, um, he has this wonderful one-liner. He says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, right? Until we find God, until we are united with God, we will be restless, okay? Does it mean that all these other things are not to be found, that, 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 that there's no joy in them, that there's no satisfaction in them, that they're, that they're all empty? No, God gave us these gifts for us to properly enjoy them right? He gave us love, right? He gave us family. He gave us each other, right? He, he wants us to experience good things. Just don't mistake good things for the one great thing. All the blessings of this world we experience, guys, they are merely a taste of what is to come. They're simply to arouse our longing for what we will truly experience when we are fully united with God face-to-face. We are enjoying the appetizer right now, my friends, not the main course. Now, the other key to Ecclesiastes, go forward one chapter in your Bible to Ecclesiastes 3.11. It's actually part B of the verse. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. It says, he, capital H, so it's referring to God, he has set eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Think of that for just a moment. If God has placed eternity in our heart, that means that we are eternal beings. We are made in God's image. We are made in his likeness. And we are designed, when we are made, to be with him forever. We are eternal beings. When God made the trees, he didn't put eternity into their hearts. When God made the fish, sorry Nemo, did not put eternity in the fish's heart. When he made the rocks, when he made the clouds, those things, none of those were designed for eternity. We were. We were designed for eternity. But we live in this temporal world. We're kind of like amphibians, right? We're designed to exist and to thrive in another world, but we can survive in the world that we find ourselves in. We almost have this kind of dual nature. But if we're destined for eternity, if we're designed for eternity, 
Should it surprise us that the things of this world don't really ultimately satisfy? Probably not, right? Again, they, they play a little, all the gifts of this world, they're good. They'll bring a smile to your face temporarily, but they all play a little bit like the old LP records, the old vinyls that have scratches in them. The music's not quite right. Even with the good gifts of this world, they're all kind of broken because we live in a sinful world. Now, my favorite author that I came across in seminary uh, when I was there is a guy named C.S. Lewis. I think he sees just a little further than most. And C.S. Lewis, he surveyed his own life and he looked at the discontent in his own life and he realized, you know, I'm not satisfied either. I've got an inner longing, an inner craving, an inner desire for something that remains unsatisfied. And he says, if I understand my longings properly, my discontent properly, he said, if I look at a dissatisfaction in my heart, it's actually properly understood a longing for something. And when he looked at this, he says, in the world that we live in, every natural desire, it has a correlating satisfaction. Every desire in your heart has something that would satisfy that desire. Every one. That's the way we've been made. So I'll give you an example. If you've ever experienced thirst, right, you take a big glass of water, a couple big glasses of water, and all of a sudden that longing is satisfied, Right? Uh, if we feel thirst, the correlating satisfaction is water or some drink that will hydrate you. If you feel hunger, right, you've gone for a period of time without food and you feel hunger, well, then you eat a big meal and all of a sudden you're no longer hungry, right? You have the desire and you have the correlating satisfaction, right? You look at loneliness. If you ever feel lonely, right, you're, you're longing for company, then you get around other people and you're no longer lonely, right? As human beings, right, some, some of these desires have been hardwired into us. You might feel a sexual drive. Well, there is sex. Lewis looks at literally every natural desire in the world that we have. They all have a correlating satisfaction, every one. In fact, how do we properly know our desires except by their satisfaction, okay? But Lewis says, when all of these desires of mine have been fulfilled, I still feel something is missing. There is a, there's a longing deep within my heart that I have not yet truly found the satisfaction of. And in a world where every desire has a correlating satisfaction, something's wrong. So Lewis, as a philosopher, as he pondered this, he responded to it this way. And I'm going to read you a text from Mere Christianity. I think this is brilliant. Lewis says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't mean the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never made to satisfy them, but merely to arouse them, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand to never despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. There's some good perspective. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not experience until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. In fact, I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. I love that. My friends, this world is not your home. This is a stop along the way of the journey. The discontent you feel is real. And church, I'm speaking to you, it's not going to get better until we are on the other side. 
that's when we will experience Jesus Christ face to face in his fullness. And that's when the longings of our heart will be truly and ultimately satisfied. And until that time, we are to be comfortable with the discontent. In fact, God kind of wired us that way so that we wouldn't get too comfortable and mistake this current stop as our true home, right? My friends, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of your deepest longings. He is the joy of man's desiring because he is the one person that can get you to press on, that is able to get you on to your true country. That true country is heaven, and there is only one way to get there, and that is through God's provision of his son, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us that there is one mediator, and there is, sorry, there is one God and one mediator between man and God, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Okay? And if you are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know what it means for that to be the case, I would encourage you, come find me after service. I would love to talk to you. We'll have a couple people up front over here that will be willing to pray for you and answer questions for you as well. But please know that the only way to achieve this satisfaction that you long for is through Jesus Christ and what he offers you to be able to be with fellowship with God in heaven when our time here is done. And Lord, we do wait with eager anticipation for that day. My friends, we're going to finish our time together this morning with communion. We're going to partake of the bread and the cup this morning. Go ahead, ushers, and come forward if you could and serve us. My friends, when you're served, the bread and the cup, if you could hold those until everyone's been served, and then we'll take the elements together, okay? Um, For those of you who are going, okay, what's going on with this thing? Um, Communion for us as a church is a bit of a ritual. It's a bit of a tradition. Anyone who is in Christ is invited to participate in this. And by the way, for the 10% of you in the room for whom this matters, the cracker is gluten-free, okay? You will not be allergic to the communion elements, all right? So go ahead and partake. But this is a symbol uh, of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're going to partake of the bread, and we're going to partake of the cup in remembrance of what Jesus has done on our behalf, okay? So we will partake of that in just a moment when everyone is served. As we're waiting for the elements to be passed, I want to remind you um, that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul exhorts us to examine ourselves when we approach the Lord's table. We're to look within, right? Not to find worthiness for partaking in the Lord's table, for there's nothing in us that makes us worthy except for Christ alone. But my friends, it's always good to just step back for a moment and ponder, to just think about where you are in relationship to others, in relationship to the Lord. And and based on our context this morning, I want you to be thinking about where you are on this ladder, What's your content level on this ladder? Do you feel yourself trying to take that next upward step? Are you making sacrifices and and pushing yourself hard to get to that next rung, hoping that that next rung will have for you what will probably end up being really just an empty promise? My friends, I want us to realize as we partake of the Lord's table this morning that Jesus Christ, he was on the top rung of the ladder before he was born into this world in Bethlehem. He was in the presence of God the Father. He was receiving worship from the angels when he chose to climb down the ladder. He left his very privileged position in heaven and he took step by step down the ladder so that he could be with us, so that he could love us, so that he could serve us, and so that he could be a provision for us. And my friends, I want you to think a little bit about that as we 
uh, take the Lord's table this morning because I think Jesus' example is something we should always look to with uh, a certain amount of reverence and respect. You see, Rob, last week in his sermon, he spoke about the differences between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. What's the difference? The Dead Sea water flows into it, but the Dead Sea keeps all of its water, right? And there's no life in the Dead Sea. What's different in the Sea of Galilee? The Sea of Galilee has water pouring into it, but it releases out some of its water. It gives to others. It releases to others. And as a result, it's healthy. It's full of life. My friends, I want us to be thinking about that today. How can we pour into others? As opposed to climbing the ladder and keeping everything for ourselves, how can we maybe take a step down the ladder and give unto others, be a blessing and a provision to others the way that Jesus was to us? There's a board outside. When you go out, it's a needs board. It's a, a pe- members from our body who are struggling, who, who are, need help with things. Would you consider, instead of putting that extra money in your savings account or your investment account to go do something to try to build up your own assets and holdings, would you consider having an open hand to help out someone else in the body who has a need that you might be able to help fulfill? Um, The book of Acts, I think it's Acts 20, it's not lying when it says it is more blessed to give than to receive. Some of the most fulfilling things you'll ever do in your life that will bring joy to you is when you offer what you have in the service of others and you willingly take a step, not up but down, to be a provision to other people. So whether you fulfill something on the needs board when you leave here today, maybe you have a need that you need to contribute to it because you're struggling and you could use help with something. Guys, that's one of the things we do as a church. We help each other along the way. Help each other along until we find our true country, as Lewis says, right? Um, But additionally, as we're recruiting for volunteers for the Learning Center for our children, that's another way you can release, another way you can give back. If you're not doing that, if you have an opportunity to do that, I would encourage you, take the challenge, right? Um, Our kids need that, all right? We need to be a blessing to each other and to help our children on their journey as well. Lord, as we take the bread in our hand this morning, we're, remind all, we're reminded that this is a symbol of your body that was broken. You laid down your life for us as a provision for us so that you could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, we had no access to heaven. We had no way of achieving salvation without your offering of your life. So Lord, we take this in remembrance of you. And Lord, on Calvary's cross, your hands and your feet were pierced. Isaiah 53 says that um, it is because his hands were pierced, it was because his blood was spilled that um, his pain and his suffering, his chastisement was laid upon him to bring us peace. Lord, you have accomplished for us through your shed blood a remission for our sins a forgiveness for our offenses against a holy God. So, Lord, when we take this cup, we remember, Lord, that your blood was spilled willingly. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, we take this cup and we give you thanks as we uh, remember the price you've paid for our sins. Lord, you are the fulfillment of our heart's deepest longings. Lord, you are the only place where our satisfactions find their resonance. Lord, thank you that you chose to come down the ladder to be our provision. Lord, we thank you for 
the rest that you offer us. And Lord, we know we will not fully experience that until the other side. But Jesus, we're grateful that you made that choice and that you offered yourself as a ransom for us. And as we sing this morning and acknowledge the price you've paid, Lord, help us to leave here changed. Lord, help us to be a provision for others. Help us to help others along the way. And Lord, do it with a joyful heart in remembrance and recognition of the price you have paid for us. Amen.